Hello, and welcome to the second installment of The Vinyl Approach. My name is Tom Wilmoth. I've been publishing my thoughts on music and have been involved with radio since the early 1970s. I call myself a collector of popular music, but that should really be amended to a collector of popular and unpopular music. The Vinyl Approach is a bi-weekly podcast that takes a look at a wide range of albums and artists. I use the Vinyl Approach to discuss specific things that have interested me about musicians and their records. Last time we talked about the early albums of Elton John. Today it's a very different sort of piano player as we take a look at jazz pianist Keith Jarrett. Actually, I focus here on just one part of this artist's lengthy career, his solo piano recordings. Before becoming known for his solo concerts, Keith Jarrett played in group settings. For a short time, Jarrett was with Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers, then with saxman Charles Lloyd's popular quartet. After this, he joined Miles Davis, appearing on some of Miles' electric fusion albums, including Live Evil. Jarrett has performed with chamber orchestras and with symphonies, as well as in duet settings with Gary Burton and with Charlie Hayden. He has released a few records where he plays every instrument, including soprano saxophone. Today, though, we take a look at the setting that brought Keith Jarrett both accolades and derision, his solo piano recordings, and especially his solo concerts. Jarrett had been releasing albums as a group leader since 1968, but it was Keith Jarrett's 1972 solo piano album, Facing You, that made a larger audience take notice. The piano pieces on the Facing You record are brief compositions, all written by Jarrett. He told interviewer Terry Gross that during his first solo piano concerts, he would link these short pieces by improvising connecting transitions. This way, there would be no breaks in the music. Soon, the interludes overwhelmed the written pieces, with Jarrett abandoning song structure entirely. His performances became purely improvised individual pieces for piano that often lasted 40 minutes, and occasionally passed the one-hour mark. When Jarrett made plans for a second solo album, he wanted to document some of these improvisations. The result was a three-record set named for the two cities where the concerts were held, Bremen, Germany, and Lausanne, Switzerland. Music critics made much of it. The public bought copies, many copies. Jarrett's primary audience was young listeners. I became aware of this record in college through my jazz-savvy friends. The Bremen album struck us as inventive, acoustic piano improvisations taken to excruciating lengths. We were accustomed to Eric Clapton's and Jerry Garcia's stretched-out guitar solos, but here were hours of piano improvisations we found interesting. Usually interesting, anyway. Impressive, to be sure. In 1974, Jarrett's Bremen Lausanne was a hip record to own, and being a triple album, not a cheap one either. After building a career as a group player, Keith Jarrett now found himself in demand for presenting solo concerts. In the mid-1970s, these became a phenomenon. The piano recital was certainly not a format that Jarrett created. Jazz history is full of solo piano, by Earl Father Hines, Thelonious Monk, Marion McPartland, and Bill Evans. Each had performed and recorded in a solo piano setting, but Jarrett brought something new to the table. These earlier artists would usually take a set melody as a starting place for improvisation, using the song's chord changes as a departure point for musical exploration. Jarrett had no such starting place for his expansive improvisations, maintaining that he was spontaneously creating the composition on the spot. 
And this was new. At least it was to us in 1974. Some might point to pianist Cecil Taylor as a forerunner of Jarrett's purely improvisational approach to piano, but Cecil Taylor often seemed to be at odds with his piano, sometimes attacking the keys and treating it like a percussion instrument. Jarrett's introspective playing was more in sync with his largely youthful audience of the 1970s. To his credit, after the success of Bremen Lausanne, Jarrett did not abandon ensemble playing. In fact, he led two bands throughout the 1970s, one American and one European, on two different record labels. Jarrett released five albums as a group leader before his next solo piano endeavor, The Colon Concert. This two-record set of unscripted piano improvisation received even greater acclaim than Bremen Lausanne and greater record sales. In fact, at nearly four million copies, The Colon Concert is the largest selling solo jazz album in history. It has sold better than any other solo piano record in any genre. Jarrett's Colon Concert is a study in exceptional art coming from adversity. The pianist was not feeling well the night of the performance with back pain that had kept him from sleeping for several nights. The concert was arranged by an inexperienced 17-year-old promoter who was presenting Jarrett in an old German opera house, one where jazz had never previously been allowed. The management agreed that the performance could take place, but only after that evening's opera had concluded. This pushed the concert's start time to nearly midnight. Arriving at the venue, Jarrett saw that the hall had not obtained the Bosendorfer piano for which his contract called, but there sat a smaller practice model. Maybe Jarrett took pity on his 17-year-old concert booker. Maybe it was because the recording equipment was already in place. But for whatever reason, Jarrett agreed to go ahead with the concert in spite of fatigue, irritation, and an inadequate instrument. Some say he proceeded to give the concert of his life. Close analysis has been given to the improvisations on this colon record, examining how the pianist compensated for the deficiencies of his piano said to be weak in both its highest and lowest registers. As might be expected, Jarrett keeps most of his playing within the instrument's mid-range, exploring these middle octaves in unusual depth. It seems odd, but the limitations of the piano, combined with the tension surrounding the event, brought out some of Jarrett's most acclaimed work. The Cold Concert had been recorded in 1975. The following year, Jarrett went into the studio to record several improvised solo pieces, released on the album Staircase. Although well-received, this two-record set had some reviewers preferring a concert setting for Jarrett's solo work, saying that the pieces on Staircase were less inspired. They wondered if the pianist needed the immediacy of a live audience. Jarrett himself may agree. He has said that he prefers giving concerts to recording in a barren studio. The pianist seems to need an audience present in order to achieve an optimum performance and has insisted that he plays for the public. Maybe so, but his relationship with concert audiences has long been a stormy one with Jarrett intolerant of any distractions. He is easily irritated by the usual bane of performers, an audience's talking or coughing, but Jarrett goes further. Fronting his quartet in 1975, the pianist berated an Iowa City audience for their applause following a band member's solo. Jarrett abruptly stopped the music in mid-piece and asked, Why are you clapping? Do you really think it's a good solo, or are you just indicating to others that you know it is a solo? Ouch. I have friends who still get angry when remembering how they were lectured by Jarrett that night. His attitude never softened. 
Thirty years later, performing with his trio at the 2007 Umbria Festival, Jarrett became incensed by photographers who he found intrusive and threatened to end the concert. The irritated festival organizers did not invite him back until 2013, when Jarrett again alienated both management and audience by playing in absolute darkness, the only light coming from the small bulb on his bassist's music stand. Jarrett seems to want it both ways, with an audience present, but in no way noticeable. Whether in a studio or a concert hall, not everyone embraced Keith Jarrett's improvisational approach. His piano pieces struck some as interminable. The great jazz pianist Oscar Peterson, for one. I had the opportunity to speak with Peterson in 1980 prior to a solo piano concert of his own. I asked him about Jarrett. Not a fan, was the succinct assessment. Peterson thought Jarrett's solo work was a pose. He used the word kidding and called the lengthy improvisations a fad. Oscar Peterson told me that he himself could do that type of performance if he chose to, what he called rambling along the piano keys for hours on end, but he asked, why would I want to do that? Peterson said that Jarrett needed to be more concise. It doesn't take two hours to say what he is saying. Oscar Peterson urged fans of Keith Jarrett to go find some Art Tatum records. I asked Minneapolis jazz pianist Bobby Lyle the same question. He too thought Jarrett's approach was excessive. Lyle told me, as a one-time thing, it's fine, but how many ten-record sets do we need to hear before we get Jarrett's point? Bobby Lyle was referring to Keith Jarrett's live project, the Sun Bear Concerts, and as Lyle correctly noted, this was a monumental ten-album box set of solo performances, recorded in Japan during Jarrett's 1976 concert tour. Upon its release, the Sun Bear Concerts became a punchline in jazz circles for its sheer length, with one magazine running a photo of Jarrett accompanied by the headline, Would you buy a ten-record set from this man? The album contained over six and a half hours of improvised piano performances recorded during a two-week period. Universally noted for its extravagant amount of material, most critics still reacted favorably to its music, although sometimes grudgingly. Being able to deliver that amount of fresh material in a short amount of time span may sound suspect, but Jarrett insists that he does not have any preconceived notions of what he plans to play before stepping on stage. He has said that he is influenced by the audience and by his surroundings. This spontaneity differs from other artists who have engaged in unstructured or free jazz performances. I once interviewed the late violin player Leroy Jenkins about his approach to concert repertoire. Like Jarrett, Leroy Jenkins was a solo performer who excelled in unstructured presentations. Unlike Jarrett, Leroy Jenkins had an idea of where he was going with the program. Jenkins told me he had a few musical themes and motifs in mind before beginning a concert, even if these would only serve as points of departure for his uncharted jazz explorations. I tend to believe Jarrett's claim that his solo work is completely spontaneous, largely because of a recording session that never took place. One of Keith Jarrett's musical areas is the decidedly unimprovised world of classical music. In 1976, Jarrett performed his composition Ritual with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. This led to an invitation for Jarrett to appear on a program called St. Paul Sunday Morning. This was a long-running NPR radio show of light classical pieces recorded live in the studio. The music was interspersed with conversation between the host and that week's guest. The plan was for Jarrett to give examples of his improvised piano compositions to the program's classical music audience. 
St. Paul Sunday Morning was taped prior to broadcast at the Minnesota Public Radio Studios, where I worked at the time. We had some heavy hitters coming through the building to be guests on that show. I recall cellist Yo-Yo Ma did an episode of the program. Because I worked at the station, I was hoping to meet Keith Jarrett. I didn't, but I later heard stories about the recording session. Or, I should say, the non-session. I was told that Jarrett arrived, he was pleasant and talkative as he sat at the piano, but he never played a note of music. At one point, Jarrett cheerfully explained to the program's frustrated producers, My muse is not with me. This indicates to me that Jarrett had not prepared anything in advance, as has always been his claim. As such, there never was a St. Paul Sunday morning radio program featuring Keith Jarrett. His muse could not be conjured in our studio just then. Because Jarrett does not have the luxury of blaming an absent muse if he is scheduled to perform a concert, I couldn't help but wonder how the artist handled that scenario. Beginning in 1983, Jarrett formed a trio that primarily played standards, well-known songs from an earlier era. He also continued to give solo piano performances, but now these concerts were not always made up of a lengthy, uninterrupted piece as before. They would still be improvised works for piano, but with pieces of a less daunting duration. In 1995, Jarrett announced he would play a handful of dates in Italy that would be his final, long-form piano concerts. Other changes took place. In 2014, Jarrett disbanded his trio, and since 2017, he has been inactive on the concert scene. In 2020, Jarrett told the New York Times that a series of strokes had affected his left hand, making his future as a performing musician doubtful. Some jazz enthusiasts would not be perturbed by this news. For years, I have been told that Keith Jarrett is no longer relevant. When I have written articles about him, much of the reaction is either that of hostility or of boredom. I disagree with the current era's casual dismissal of this artist and believe Jarrett's work is worthy of close examination. I think one thing that keeps the uninitiated listener from getting to know Jarrett's music is the sheer amount of his large and varied body of recorded material. Like approaching other artists with numerous releases, whether from the worlds of rock, jazz, or classical, choosing a starting place can be overwhelming. I suggest one entry point for Jarrett's catalog could be the focus of this program, his solo piano recordings. I end today with three recommendations. The concert album Bremen Lausanne, the Köln concert, and for contrast, the studio album Staircase. Each of these solo piano recordings is available on the ECM label. They can also be heard on the Spotify list that accompanies this program found under the name Vinyl Approach Episode 2, Keith Jarrett. And this has been The Vinyl Approach. I'm Tom Wilmoth, and if you are interested in reading more of my opinions about music, I have published a book called Soundbites, A Lifetime of Listening. It's available on Amazon. Take care, and I'll see you next time when we'll look at the B-sides of Bob Dylan's singles. <laughs>